the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. American prosperity is the bedrock of freedom and security all over the world. An obligation to the heritage of liberty and dignity handed down to us by our forefathers. It's time for the Pro-America Report with Ed Martin on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Thank you for tuning in. Got a ton of attention. Wow, a lot of attention from everybody over my um, writings and uh, and the wink earlier about Ben Carson. Uh, so welcome to the Pro-America Report. If you haven't gone over to ProAmericaReport.com, head over there, sign up for uh, that Substack. I'll send you. It's about two, three times a week sometimes, two times a week. But then make sure you're signed up for the daily email, the wink, what you need to know, which comes out. Go to Phyllis Schlafly dot com sign up there that's daily 8 a.m east coast 5 a.m pacific you'll get that in your inbox couple of links a couple of key stories and then one bam what you need to know the wink and uh, the wink uh, today was about uh, ben carson tons of great responses actually a couple uh, the only qualifiers that nobody says a bad thing about ben carson everybody loves him a couple people said they like so-and-so better one is byron donalds they said a younger guy um someone emailed me i think hey, hugh maybe emailed and said um what about i i want someone who can be president for eight years after trump that's byron donalds that's nice but that misunderstands how Donald Trump sees uh, management and business and competition. If he put in someone who was obviously the heir apparent, he would be eliminating the energy that will be on display if the person who's nominated, like Ben Carson, is not obviously going to run. I mean, Ben Carson could run. He's very healthy. Uh, but it would be perceived that he would be uh, someone who Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, uh, everybody and their brother, governors from here to, uh, to uh, I guess not California, but governors all across the country would line up to try to run. And I think Donald Trump would recognize the power advantage for him to have that situation. But anyway, be that as it may, welcome again to the Pro-America Report today. Today's wink is this. The lawfare continues. The lawfare continues unabated, without fail, without without ceasing. The lawfare, the use of the law and the government and uh, and the legal system against Donald Trump, it continues. It's it's uh, it's amazing to watch. And what's happened is someone said this and someone said this uh, a while ago. I'm not sure who it was. Could have been Scott Adams, uh, the Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy who does political commentary. Now, he said something like, uh, oh, I think he's quoting his mother. He says, mother said you can get used to, to anything over time. 
Once something is happening over time, you get used to it. The, the corollary, by the way, is my Marine Corps brother who uh, served in the Marine Corps for 25 years almost, I think. And he was served in Iraq and Afghanistan, a heroic dude, uh, infantry guy the whole time. He used to say, uh, in the Marines, they teach you, you can, you can uh, stand on your head in a bucket of slop. He used a different word than slop, a different four-letter word. Uh, for If that's what you get used to, you get used to anything. So here we are. Lawfare is waging all the time. There's there's defamation claims by uh, E. Jane Carroll for something she can't recall happening 25 years ago. Can't get the details right. But she's suing. And there's a jury awarding that. There's a a, a, a question of, of documents. When you're the president of the United States, you're allowed to do whatever you want with the documents you have. That's always been the tradition. And somehow it turns out that they're going after Donald Trump on that. Then there's a, the Fannie Willis thing in, uh, in, in uh, Georgia, which now has all of the the uh, lurid uh, details she's admitted. Fannie Willis has admitted to this affair. Um, she came out and said that. And now she says everyone's being bigoted because uh, she did this. I don't know. But one after another. And you and then in Washington, D.C., Jack Smith, the famous Jack Smith, the independent prosecutor, whatever his title is, special prosecutor, has uh, this four charges four indict four four count indictments on the election. January 6th stuff that got kicked on Friday. That was uh, the judge in that case said no go. We're not doing that now. Can't do it now. There's no time. We're supposed to start the trial on March 5th. And so that's delayed indefinitely, I would say. It's my bet. Uh, we shall see. However, the lawfare never stops. Uh, the 65 committee, a group of people funded by left wing donors, uh, they, they've been uh, filing bar complaints against uh, Jeff Clark and Rudy Giuliani and Jen Ellis. Anyone who represented Trump in the aftermath of the 2020 election has been getting dinged. And it turns out that those matters are, are all coming to roost and costing money and time and energy and making it difficult for anybody who's a sane lawyer to say that they want to uh, work with uh, uh, Donald Trump if they're going to be, you know, have their bar license challenged and their and and it doesn't matter if you're Adam Schiff and you have a bar license in California and people like me have complained and said you're lying uh, constantly. It's it's dis as a discredit to the bar. No one cares. They're not going to take that up. It's lawfare. It's lawfare aimed exclusively at politics, but we're used to it. By this point, it's it's almost like, oh, well, this is happening. It's part of the political landscape. It's a little bit like when they in, in, impeached Donald Trump the second time, especially. They basically were using a political tool, which I agree is a constitutionally offered political tool. But they were using it so uh, callously and with such uh, clear, um, you know, they just weren't even trying to fake like they were serious. And the same thing with the January 6th Select Committee. It's now come out in the last week or so, more discrepancies, more problems with the record, more issues around that select committee, uh, more things missing. It's reported that uh, the the four uh, terabyte, is it terabyte maybe? Uh, terrible for whatever the units, four units, massive units of data were supposed to be turned over by the select committee of Benny Thompson, Liz Cheney and Nancy Pelosi. And they only turned over like one point eight of four. The others missing and nobody knows where it is. So there's more chaos. But the lawfare continues. And I have to tell you, as soon as Friday, the news came out that they were delaying the D.C. trial. I, I took a look at it and I realized, well, that's OK, because on March 25th. There is a New York district attorney uh, trial set for the question of whether there was illegality about the payment of money to Stormy Daniels. 
that the payment of money to Stormy Daniels might have been done by Trump in such a way that it sort of violated some rules. Nobody really knows what the law that was broken. This is about sort of hiding that you did that. There's no uh, there's not been a finding that anybody broke campaign finance laws or any other laws. There's no fraud. It's just a question of whether you didn't tell everyone or I don't even know. But the, the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, is ready to go. And to my point on lawfare, you don't try these cases in places where you'd get a fair trial if you're Alvin Bragg. You are in New York, where it doesn't matter what Trump does. He has so been so widely vilified and so effectively characterized badly that it's impossible to imagine a jury is going to upside for him. So on March 25th, you're going to have a criminal trial with the guy running for president. Now, here's the thing about the lawfare. Again, we're so used to it. As Donald Trump complained about the D.C. case on January 6th, they could have filed that lawsuit. They could have filed that complaint, those charges, two years ago. They could have. They certainly could have. In New York, they could have filed this one more than that, three or four years ago, five years ago. The point is they waited to make sure that they had the political cudgel to not just to succeed. It's not succeeding for justice. It's succeeding for politics. That's as clear as can be now. Everybody sees it. That's what lawfare has become. It's not even faking it. It's not even pretending that it matters. It's just charging ahead and utilizing the legal system to go after your political opponents. It is breathtaking to watch. It is so destructive to America. And to pause and say again what I've told you over and over the crown jewel of America. You go to London, the crown jewels are in the, in the near the Tower of London under lock and key. There's actually a crown. There's a scepter. There's all these jewels. In America, we don't have that because we don't have a king. We have we the people who give our power to the government because we're sovereign. And our crown jewels are the Constitution. Our crown jewels are, 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 are the Declaration of Independence. Our crown jewels are the rule of law. And our crown jewels are the founding values. And when you put those together... That the insight was we, the people are sovereign. That's the insight that motivates America. And the execution of that is constitution, rule of law, founding documents, and our values. That's under assault now. They're not just taken out with with this lawfare. They're not just taken out. Uh, you know, they're not just diminishing our um, our uh, corporate community. Let's. I don't know how to get there. Our, our industrial base. That's been happening for twenty five years as big corporations have sold out to inter- internationalists and moved everything overseas and all. That's bad. That's bad. That is bad. It's a bad preference though that we can reverse with other preferences, and we're trying to do it. Trump especially was trying to force uh, a manufacturing home by changing the getting the incentives back in line to make it so you wanted to be here. But if you got lawfare, if by lawfare you got the the crown jewels, our constitution, rule of law, and founding values, the rest of it doesn't hold together. It's true that our, uh, our our university system is broken. That's true, most of it. But that doesn't mean that our America is broken. It just means we got to get a better system, and that's happening all around us. So lawfare continues unabated, nonstop, right at us. As soon as one legal entity and legal effort stalls another one steps up terrible terrible bad for the country all right we've got to take a break we'll be right back it's ed martin that's a wink you're listening to the pro america report back in a moment
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. It's been a few months. I can't remember, actually, right now. I should uh, uh, plead ignorance, which I'm good at. Uh, but our next guest is uh, Kenneth Raposa, and he was on with us a few months ago. He's he's a very, very experienced journalist. Uh, Boston Globe, as I recall, Wall Street Journal. I know that for sure. All over the world, too. And he's got a piece uh, that Discourse Magazine, the title is You Don't Own a Chinese Car Yet, But You Will. So welcome back uh kenneth Raposa. how are you sir hey how, thanks for having me back ed I, I i don't believe it i mean i read you what you said so i believe you but uh, tell me really i mean is uh, first of all can china uh, you know projecting china's s- sustaining themselves in any way it, it's hard to do because they lie but i mean what walk me through what you're seeing and more importantly how you think this could play out Okay, well, let, let's start with the, the premise of that article in Discourse magazine, which is published by the Mercatus Center at um, George Mason University. It's a nice magazine. Yep. And the, the premise there was on the EVs, right? So yep. China, the EV for China automotive industry is the Trojan horse. So what I mean by that is this is the way that China breaks into the, the global auto market. It's through right. EVs, okay? Yep. So just like uh, Korea did after Japan, right? In, in the late 80s and early 90s, we all learned what a Hyundai was. And then the Kia, <laughs> right. Right? Right. now this new company. But right. back in the 80s, if you if someone drove a Hyundai Elantra or whatever, that was uh, whatever. I, no, I think it was a Hyundai. I forgot what the original Hyundai was, but it was, you know, unheard of. That was a... That was a a brand new car in the, in the market. Right. Everything else was right. American, European, or that. So, right. so China's going to move in on that with EVs. And they already are, primarily in their own home country. Obviously, China's the number one producer of EVs in the world. The top 10 EVs sold in the world are almost all Chinese, minus, minus Tesla. That's a little bit of a misnomer, though, because China's auto market is the biggest in the world. And so if China obviously buy, if Chinese people in China buy more EVs, then, you know, Right. It goes without saying, right? Yeah. But all of the EVs, the biggest ones in the world, they're, they're all the Chinese brands. And in the Americas, meaning south of the border, Mexico and Brazil, two big auto markets, not a huge EV market there, not a huge EV market there. But right. all the EVs that are for sale there, all of the top ones are, are uh, Chinese. They're not. There's no Tesla in the top five, let's say. Mm-hmm. It's all Volvo. And again, most people, many of your listeners might not know that Volvo is owned by a Chinese company called Geely Holdings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Volvo is essentially a Chinese majority owned car company now hmm. um you know so in, in within the ev space in the americas china dominates south of the border there's no american player there there's just right. not right. And, and in the battery space which is even more important china is a top five player so if you're driving a tesla which is the number one ev in the world they sell 500 600 000 units a year it's powered by either a panasonic which is japanese or it's powered by Cadel which is Chinese or BYD, which is Chinese. Hmm. No, no, no Cadle, no BYD, no Tesla. Yeah. So right. you might not drive a, a, a Chinese EV yet in the United States. You might not because we, we don't have that market yet. The, the, those cars are tariffed and they're expensive still. There's only one brand I think that's made inroads here called the Polestar. That's a, that's by Geely. That's a Volvo. Beautiful car, actually. It looks like a Tesla. But if you're driving a Tesla, on the axis, on the, on the bottom of the car, right, where the battery yeah. is, it's probably a Cadle or a BYD. It's probably powered by Chinese battery and tech. 
Huh. Now, what happens? So what happens? Um, this is and, and uh, Ken Repose is our guest, and he's written a lot about these things, about the, the dominance, the dominance of, uh, of, of China, but uh, and the communist regime. What happens if they pull this back? I mean, you know, it's like the old thing, like you think about Taiwanese uh, chip makers and everybody worries about that. It seems kind of obvious is and and I mean, I guess is the EV market going I mean, we're all going to EVs. Is that what's what you're saying? Okay. Well, here's the thing. So EVs have had a tough year, right? right. They've had a tough year. A lot of companies overestimated what people right. would this. Exactly. Even Volvo said, okay, we're not going to be funding Polestar the way we were. They said right. this yesterday. So there's a little bit of a problem there. I was surprised to hear that, actually. But consumers are buying EVs. And one of the reasons is, and again, I don't, I don't necessarily mean Americans. I mean, within the right. Western world. So Europe is even more gung-ho about EVs. And the reason for that is, of course, you have states like California and New York saying you got to have an EV by 2030 or who knows what the punishment is, right? right. We're going to tax you 30%. Or who, who knows? They're going to come up with some sort of punishment. But so people realize that that's, that's a mandate that's being handed down from on high. And if they can afford a Tesla or a Volkswagen ID4 or whatever, or a Hyundai Ioniq, which is a, you know, an affordable EV SUV then mm-hmm. that, and they don't have to drive, you know, they don't, they're not driving a lot on a regular basis. They don't care about charging so much, then they're going to buy it. So years ago, I think it was around 2011, 2012, the EVs were about 8% of U.S. auto sales. Now they're close to 18 to 20%. So the trend is there, right? The trend is that right. it's rising. The thing about the, about China is this. Okay. So here's, here's something to understand. China knows, right? China, we all know China's in manufacturing power. We all know that China has grown up from being a happy meal toy making economy to the now the guys who run TikTok on your phone. They own your Lenovo laptop in your home office. They own the Lexmark copying machine in the corporate offices of Goldman Sachs. Okay, they own that. That's that's China today. They're not the happy meal toy making economy of old. So China knows that every country that has a native auto industry, right. United States, Germany, France, Japan, South Korea, and China saying, I want it on that action. Right. And rightfully so. Right. I mean, why, why wouldn't someone think that? I guess. Right. I mean, right. it only makes sense that you would think that they're a manufacturing power. Let's make one of the let's make the number one manufactured good outside of electronics that go into your iPhone, which they make. Of course, let's make that, too. It's the number right. one good in the world. Let, let's make it other than oil. Right. Other than oil, I think uh, cars and electronics, number th- top three traded goods in the world. Right. So that's so, so that's where China, what China's thinking. But here's where the EV story plays in, Ed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So China for years, right, has listened to Brussels and Washington complain about climate change, and Brussels and Washington has said for a long time now we are going to move to a post fossil fuels economy, starting with transportation. We are going to build a post-fossil fuel transportation grid, okay? Right. Starting with cars. We're moving to it. We're, we're going to shelve our decades-old combustion engine auto market, and we're going to build EVs. We're going to rely less on oil and gas to power out and heat our homes, and we're going to rely on solar, and we're going to rely on wind. China said, we're on board. We're on board. But we're not on board with necessarily lowering greenhouse gases, which is what you guys are all worried about. We have the manufacturing power. We're going to be the ones that make all your renewable energy stuff. We're going to make your EV batteries. We're going to make your EV cars. We're going to make your solar panels. We're going to make your solar cells. We're going to make your wind. Now, the Western world, that's now that it's pushing this more and more, right? They're pushing all this stuff on 
people with the you got the Inflation Reduction Act and all these subsidies. And in some ways, those those things are good because if you want to build a native industry in solar and wind, you kind of need some sort of support to compete with China. The problem is America has no wind company. There's no such thing as an American wind turbine company. If there is, they're so small, they're not in the top 10 globally. Right. So Chinese and European and China is number one. Solar, I think the United States has one solar company in the top 10. The rest are Korean and Chinese and China is like the, to- is like the top eight. And of course, EV batteries, there's no such thing as an American EV battery maker. And if there is one, I assure you, there's not a single car on the road that you've ever seen that's an EV that's powered by one. Okay. There might yep. be some you know, EV that costs a million dollars that no one's ever heard of. That's got like the AX5, you know, wing nut, you know, e- battery that right. runs on water that, you know, costs a million dollars. Okay. Maybe that car, but no one is driving that car and that car is not, and, and United States does not have an EV battery company at all. So just as we're moving to, towards this, renewable post-fossil fuel transportation market, China is in the pole position. They run it. They run that entire supply chain from the minerals that go into those batteries to making the batteries themselves. They run the entire, almost the entirety of the solar supply chain on the polysilicon that goes into making the little glass wafers that go into the solar cells that get plugged into solar panels. They're dominant in wind turbine. And the United States doesn't really have a way to say, okay, well, we're going to get these subsidies from the state, but what are we going to, who are we going to give it to? Is Ken and Ed going to all of a sudden create, <laughs> you know, Elon, yeah. Musk is, Elon Musk is even saying we're going to create a, a battery company. They're not yeah. even, he doesn't even say that, you know, yeah. it's all Asia. It's all Asia. So, you know, this, this is where, this is a perfect play for China. They played the Western fear of climate change, like a fiddle. They run the renewable energy supply chain. They, they're dominant players in all three spheres of, of renewables from EV batteries to EV cars to wind and solar. Yeah. And uh, there's no there's no other country that's like that. There's not a single country in the world that you can say they're good at all those things. Japan, no solar. Japan, no wind. Korea right. say Korea has solar, but no wind. Okay. And I, and they do have EVs, EV batteries. And now and Hyundai's gonna be Hyundai's good. Korea it, it is uh I'm unfortunately Ken, I'm out of time. Uh and and but I, I'm I'm glad you're writing on this and more importantly out there talking about it. We gotta have you back on. Uh you gotta email me again or have your people do it because we gotta cover this more about what could be, what could the future be. But I gotta take a break, unfortunately. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. That's Kenneth Repose, and I'll put the links up on uh on my social media. Be right back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest I met a couple months ago. I think it was over at the Epoch Times, uh, uh, excuse me, holiday event, Christmas party. And uh, and we met and talked a little bit about what he's up to. And he's a young man, uh, but he's also a published author. And we were just talking offline about his book. It's Gun Rights 101, Firing Back Against Gun Control's Biggest Lies. His name is Tyler Izagari. And uh, welcome to the program, Tyler. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me today. Excited to be here. Uh, yes, it was a few months ago at that party, and uh, it was a good party. And uh, now we're here. And <laughs> yeah, now we're yeah. Here. You know, I think you young guys stayed out after I, I went home. I went home to, to the wife and kids and all. But anyway, Tyler, first of all, you're the president of the Second Amendment Institute. I mentioned young man. What is that? And, you know, how did you get drawn to the to these issues? And where'd you come from? I know now you're in D.C., in the swamp, but not of the swamp. But where did you come from to get here? Tell us a little bit about that institute and who you are. 
Sure. Unfortunately, I have been in the swamp now for seven years at the Capitol Hill's doorsteps uh, fighting for our 2A rights. Came from Delaware, University of Delaware, uh-huh. and turned 21, went out and bought my first firearm, didn't go out and get sloshed. And then I started students for the Second Amendment at University of Delaware. Wasn't a big hit with uh, <laughs> campus administration, but the students loved it. Uh, we grew really fast. Brought in Katie Pavlich from Fox News before she became a super mega star that she is today. And we did you know, gun training and, and safe, firearm safety training and went to the range. So that's how I kind of got started in the 2A movement, graduated, started the Second Amendment Institute. And we're pretty much a educational advocacy organization, sort of the mild down uh, version of, you know, Gun Owners of America or NRA, where uh, we have kind of more people in the middle, on the left, on the right. We bring in everybody just because we're educational based and mm. advocacy based. And we try to approach the 2A from a learning perspective. Uh, and my most successful method has been, you know, for the gun haters are bringing to the range, they shoot and they love it. <laughs> so that's kind of right. how we convert the non-gunnies to the, the, the pro QA side. <laughs> uh, uh, and we focused on, we, we started getting lawsuits last year and uh, wow. Alan West became the premier uh, chairman of our board of directors last year as well. So Colonel West has opened a lot of doors for us, especially with congressional members and just adding legitimacy to the name of the organization. And that's where we are today. Uh, again, we're uh, we're talking with Tyler Izagari, and uh, he's the president of the Second Amendment Institute. I will put up links. Um, uh, the website is SA Second Amendment. I uh, well, let's say SAI is that right? Uh, yeah, yes. SAI National. So SAINational dot org. I'll put a link up there. Not the easiest one to get me right. I want to say Sane. I don't know what I want to say. Anyway, okay, <laughs> uh, uh, Tyler. With young, back to young people for a second. You know, we're told young people are liberal on Second Amendment, right? We're told that. Yet, as you say when you present them with it, it's not, it doesn't go that way generally. I mean, not, not every time, right? There's, but how hostile was the uh, college uh, campus? I mean, you can create, I'm sure you could tell us and you could probably write about this, that uh, when you start a second amendment organization, like you did in, even in Washington, you're going to find allies, you know, you're going to find people that are interested. You're going to find people that are willing to engage. You go on a campus and a campus is, uh, they're just hostile. That's the name of the game. How hostile was it? And how, you know, how do you think the future, uh, of universities when you see all the wokeness and the, and the coverage of it right now. So I was pretty lucky. I graduated in, in 2015. So universities and college campuses weren't as radicalized back then as they are today. Right. I mean, now it's just, it's, it's horrible uh, these days. So when I was there, it was pretty good reception from students overall, you know, and we didn't really have any, even we got some numbers from the college Democrats, college Republicans, hmm. different organizations, the, you know, Halal, the Jewish organization on campus. Uh, it was really accepted by students because we focus on, on defense or self-defense rights, really. Um, and then we did, you know, trips to the range, we went to the machine gun shoots. The biggest uphill battle was going against the university. We requested capital funds for uh, ammunition just so we could go to the range, teach students how to shoot safely. And they denied the request and I threatened them with a lawsuit and they ended up caving in and giving us a, a check for what I asked for 500, but they gave us 498 just as a kind of final screw you, I guess. Wow. And I still have a copy of that check frame. Wow. Yeah. Campuses today, that's a different story. You know, I think if I went to campuses today under students, the second amendment, I think it would be 
less students be less receptive. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, you have your your strong red states, you know, Texas, uh, North Carolina, South, those kind of states that would be more receptive. But you know, anything anything north of the Mason Dixon line, I think it's going to be pretty difficult to to recruit students on. But you know, we need them on our side because they're the future. And right. if we don't do something about what's going on and, you know, brainwashing these students uh, that we see every day, stories from Daily Signal or Heritage, whoever, it's, it's, it's a grim future. Our guest is uh, Tyler Izagari, and uh, he is the president of the Second Amendment Institute. His book, which is out a couple of years, he just was telling me offline, he's going to update it, is Gun Rights 101, fight, Firing Back Against Gun Control's Biggest Lies. In the book, there's uh, a list of the sort of biggest lies told and then refuting them and sources and uh, a few of the big legal cases. That's one of the reasons he's got updated. He's got some more to put in there. You know, Tyler, I said something to you at our when we first met, and I messed up as, a, as a, someone who cares about the Second Amendment. And in Missouri, where I'm from, you know, got my concealed carry and then was involved in in pushing uh, to protect the Second Amendment. I said in D.C., it's a challenge. You said, oh, no, must carry. I mean, uh, yeah, what was the phrase? Um, uh, must shall uh, issue. Yeah, shall issue. Tell me what that means as our listeners all across the country uh, on our Phyllis Schlafly Eagles network uh, get this, you know, shall issue what it means and, and how you have to be able to navigate that. Uh, maybe that's one of the lies is, oh, gun control is everywhere. Well, there's protection that's uh, that says, no, you've got your rights. Tell us. Well, interestingly enough, uh, D.C. became a, a shall issue, quote unquote, state, not really state, but right. uh, jurisdiction in 2017 under a case called Ren VDC or uh, sorry, W.R.E.N.N.V.D.C. Yep. So before most of the country was shall issue, D.C. became a shall issue jurisdiction, meaning you go through the process, you take the class, you pass the class, pass the background check. The D.C.P.D., the government has to has to issue you concealed carry license. So I've had my D.C. concealed carry license since um, 2021. And thanks to Bruin now uh, at the Supreme Court last year, every state is now shall issue. But, but unfortunately, states like California and New York make it near impossible to get your concealed carry license. So, I mean, the average concealed carry license now in California costs about $1,500. Wow. Um, to, to, oh, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and D.C., they don't make it very easy either. Uh, you take the class. You go in, register your firearms, and uh, I actually just registered a, a couple more yesterday, and they put a new question on the form. It says, manufacturer ID number. It's not oh. a real thing. <laughs> they still want people to register their guns so they can arrest people for illegal firearms and, and boost up their revenue for the city. It's basically a UPC number, and I tell people, just make up a six-digit number because they don't actually check. Right. So <laughs> it, 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 it's an uphill battle, but it is shall issue across the nation now. Hmm. And uh, and and to be clear on what that means is if you, if you want your concealed carry rights, you can in most places and everywhere you can get them. And what they do is make the hoops uh, burdensome, uh, to be clear. And again, and again, our guest is uh, uh, Tyler Izagari, and he's the president of the Second Amendment Institute. Again, saination.org. You can check out that website there. His book, Gun Rights 101, available everywhere you buy books. What's the biggest challenge you see? It feels like, uh, you know, Joe Biden's campaign campaign for president launched and the deputy campaign manager was on meet the press. He said his first number one concern is abortion rights uh, of, of day one of a second term of Biden. And number two was uh, limiting gun rights. That's what he said. He said that that be, I think he's pandering to, you know, suburban women and suburban moms are just the issue or well, I don't know what. Uh, but that's what he said. What is your big what do you perceive as the biggest threat to Second Amendment rights to protections in, the, in terms of the current political policy climate? 
Sure. Well, I mean, you saw Joe Biden's White House created the Gun Violence Prevention Committee or Center, whatever it's called, and, and his staff are really hell bent on just you know chipping away at our Second Amendment rights from any direction they can. They they frame it, and the radical left frame it as we must ban assault weapons now. Well, it's it's interesting. First of all, I say, well, someone says that. I say, well, what the heck's an assault weapon? Can you define assault weapon? And they can't. And then the second part is, you know, state legislatures are just passing every gun control law they can think of, waiting mm-hmm. periods, extra fees, you know, you name it, just to keep people unarmed right. uh, because they know an armed society is a free society. And the radical left is all about control. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not about safety. It's about control. So I think what Biden and his congressional cronies on Capitol Hill are doing to pass new gun control laws. Look, there's 30,000 plus gun control laws in the book. You know, you think some yeah. of them, if they actually worked, would be working. Yeah. And they just don't. They just don't. Yeah. Uh, Tyler, I got to go. I'm out of time. Uh, Tyler, uh, Tyler Izagari is, uh, again, the president of the Second Amendment Institute. I'll put it all up on the internet. Thanks for the time. And we'll have you back again soon. Keep us uh, on the uh, list of your press releases and others so we can uh, tell what's happening. And uh, we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The shocking knife attack last November on children in broad daylight in Dublin was horrifying. Five people, including a five-year-old girl, two other youngsters, and a woman, were randomly stabbed and slashed by an assailant outside a primary school named Gaelskoil Coloste Moyer. For years, open border liberals have been allowing extensive immigration into Dublin, similar to what has transformed London. When news leaked that the perpetrator was an immigrant, all-night rioting in Dublin ensued. But then the Irish prime minister lashed out against the rioters, rather than the unprovoked attacker. Nearly a week later, Irish authorities shamefully continued to withhold the identity of the attacker. The prime minister's response was to promise new laws immediately against incitement to hatred and hatred in general. Though not Irish, Elon Musk dryly observed, ironically, the Irish prime minister hates the Irish people. An unidentified young Irishman nailed this issue with an interview that aired on Musk's X platform. This young Irishman said the new legislation has been drafted specifically to silence the Irish people from opposing the mass immigration agenda that's going on right now. Migrants or so-called refugees are being dumped in mass on small Irish towns. This man called the mass immigration imposed on Ireland by globalists a new plantation. That term strikes a nerve among the Irish, who have long used it to bitterly criticize the colonization of Ireland by English Protestants in the 1600s. Across the Western world, we are feeling the consequences of mass immigration. Our elites have lied to us when they've told us that we can open our borders and there'll be no consequences. Whether it's the United States, Ireland, or Sweden, assimilation is far more complex than simply pressing a button. In addition, immigration has a real human cost, as seen in this case in Ireland and constantly along the United States southern border. We the people are growing tired of globalism, and it's time to put an end to mass immigration. 
This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. The false promise of socialism is an illusion. It devalues hard work and creativity. It's the opposite of the American dream. As proven around the world, socialism breaks the human spirit. At phyllisschlafly.com, we're standing against the rise of socialism. For more, go to phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, um, in the uh, category of doing the right thing is worth uh, noticing and worth paying attention to. I got a text from a friend of mine, good friend of mine, good buddy of mine from my college days. His name is Mark, Mark Riley, and a great guy, super guy, a little bit liberal, but really good guy. And uh, he and I uh, spent some time when we were in college. We went on a trip down to uh, Cuernavaca in Mexico and spent like two weeks down there on a awareness. Uh, one of these things we I think he may be better. He may be at the time better at Spanish, probably is now, too. I'm not that good at Spanish. But it was a lot about awareness about what was going on there. It was an amazing trip, really, for, I don't know, 17, 18, 19, maybe we were 19, 20 year olds who had never I'd never been abroad anywhere. And uh, in fact, we met incredible people, uh, learned a lot about what it's like to live in a, in poverty in places like Mexico. Anyway, great guy, Mark. And we don't agree on a lot of things all the time. And he texted me and said, hey. Uh, doesn't this show that the system works? And he linked to an article uh, that I had seen the story of, but hadn't seen the details. And that is about this this uh, guy that went to work for the IRS as a consultant, and he leaked Donald Trump's tax returns uh, and lots of other people's, by the way. I think it was thousands of other people, uh, but he got caught. And uh, so what my friend Mark sent me was this uh, article that the guy actually, the tax return leaker, this consultant to the IRS who leaked the Trump tax returns, he got five years in prison. And the judge, Judge Reyes, said, you know, it can't be like this. It can't be open season on elected officials. And actually, the thing that was uh, pretty cool about this is he got the maximum uh, sentence that he was allowed to get because the judge said it was terrible. Um, I think his own attorneys asked for a lot less, obviously. And even the prosecutors, maybe they uh, uh, they don't know. The prosecutors did ask for they asked for the max. So I suppose he could have been charged with a lot of other things. But five years in federal prison uh, for um, what is effectively a white collar crime, you know, and I don't think this guy had any um he didn't have the, the guy that uh, got this jail term uh, did not have any uh, priors, I don't think. And so that's a pretty good sentence. And so to my friend, Mark, uh, Mark, you're exactly right. They should be praised. This judge should be praised. The DOJ should be praised. I mean, I, I have become someone who is very critical of all of it, all of the sentencing that happens in the federal system. I, I subscribe to distrust, then verify. I just don't trust the prosecutors. And that would be true for you know, uh, uh, drug crimes. It'd be true for uh, all kinds of violent crimes. And I, you know, I've got friends in the ACLU world that probably uh, chuckle if they hear me say this, because 20 years ago, they would have been telling me, you know, these too many of the federal prosecutors are really bullies and they dominate and the, and it's not fair. And I probably would have been like, well, you got to put them away. You know, you got to do the right thing. Now I'm much more, uh, I'm much more cynical. I'm much more uh, inclined to distrust than verify on all these different, uh, especially the federal prosecutors, because they have such an, an advantage. They have such an advantage as, as I forget now who was the, 
uh, defendant who was going, he said, you, you are going up against the best law firm in the world. That's the Department of Justice, especially when it's main justice in Washington. But in general, because they have the, mo- the best lawyers, they have the best um, backup, they have the, the most um, uh, resources. You know, you, they don't have to make decisions based on um, an upcoming election like a local prosecutor sometimes does. And so this is a pretty good example to my friend uh, Mark's point of the uh, the the lawyer getting um, uh, excuse me, the, the the defendant getting the maximum sentence and for the right reason. You know, I, I actually probably would have said as to a white collar crime, you know, with no priors, maybe this guy deserves leniency. But the judge's points point was you clearly did this um, and and sought to do it as a consultant and, and leaked not just Trump, but uh, thousands of others as a way to make people a target, to make it so people sh- will not want to serve in public life and will not want to be out in the thing. It's this is exactly the opposite of the lawfare. The judge is saying you're not allowed to use lawfare. You're not allowed to use a legally required filing, the IRS filings, and then go leak it in such a way against the law and against public policy and, and damage people that otherwise you're not going to have people that want to serve in public life. You're not going to want to have people that are willing to go out there. And, uh, and so good for judge Reyes, uh, for doing this. Um, she is, uh, um, a, uh, Biden nominee. So that's another part of this. And she called it an attack on our democracy. And, um, and you shouldn't be able to target the sitting president. You shouldn't be able to target other people. Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty great. Actually. I think it's, um, I think it's fantastic. And, uh, I think it's really good that if the coverage is, uh, I, after Mark sent it to me, I went look and it's covered everywhere and people are covering it and people should be praising it. People should be, people should be saying this is exactly what should happen. This is the thing that you have to do to, to people hold them accountable when they do these things. If he had gotten away with it and sort of gotten nothing or, you know, gotten a, a fine or, or went on his way. And, you know, you could think back, by the way, that remember the lawyer that worked for the FBI that I think it was uh, convicted or pled guilty to changing the FISA applications or fraud, uh, fraud, uh, uh, fraud uh, committing fraud on that, falsifying those documents. He got nothing, I think. And it maybe got his bar license suspended for a half a minute. And that, that felt like he wasn't held accountable to something that was a big deal. But in this case, the system worked. As my friend Mark said, the uh, doesn't this show the system works? And yes, it does. It shows the system works and it's worth praising. And so thank you to this Biden appointed judge for doing the right thing in this case. And uh, unless I'm missing something like there could have been massive numbers of other charges, it seems like five years is plenty of a message uh, not to do this, both to this guy and to anybody else thinking about it. So there you have it. Good stuff. All right, I got to run. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Ryan Height, associate producer, Mason Mohan. Thank you to Mark Riley, uh, my old buddy, for helping produce this show by sending me that article. And we'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.